Hey, this is Congressman Michael Burgess. I want to welcome everyone to another edition of Doctor in the House. As you know, these are a series of podcasts that is done from time to time to bring attention to, uh, to issues that are going on in front of the United States House of Representatives, particularly those in those issues that come up before the Energy and Commerce Committee, and of course, serving on the Rules Committee. Almost anything eventually is fair game. But today, we're uh, very, very fortunate to be joined by Heather Reams, who's the president of the Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions. And of course, the Energy and Commerce Committee, we, we work on, I hope, responsible energy solutions because we all know we've got a lot of problems, some of which are not even very responsible problems, but problems they are and they need to be solved. And that's what we're all about doing on the Committee on Energy and Commerce. So, you know, it's it's been, a, it's, it's kind of a, propitious time to have you here and, and to be discussing what's going on back home in Texas right now is a, an ice storm. A year ago, we had an ice storm that really did a lot of damage and hurt a lot of people. Uh, so we, we clearly are focused on that. And um, I got to tell you, I just came from a classified briefing about uh, what's going on in the world today. And if I were to say it was frightening, if that wouldn't be doing it a disservice. It is It is absolutely astonishingly bad, some of the things that could be out there on the horizon. And you know what? They involve energy as well. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your organization and help us be guided toward responsible energy solutions. Oh, so great to be with you uh, and being here in your office with you too and seeing you in person. Uh, and thank you again for you and your staff for having me. I'm Heather Reams. I'm the president of Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions. We're based in Washington, D.C., and we focus on um, all the above energy. Uh, we we want to see energy growth and, and technology. We want to lower emissions. That's the responsible part of it, for sure. sure. But we also care about the balance of our energy needs, our economic needs, um, and our environmental needs. And that three legs of a stool is really where Republicans have really shined um, on issues. They're not looking at any one issue and, and with the exception of the others. There is all those balanced together. So we are a right of center organization that focuses and talks about climate, talks about energy. Uh, and I think about Texas and energy. I just can't help but think about Texas and energy. Yeah. <laughs> How about that? And you know what? Uh, energy is clearly responsible for the benefits that we, the economic benefits that we get in Texas, and of course, the Texas economy writ large benefits the national economy. So these are these are issues of broad national interest, and uh, as you correctly point out, there is an environmental stewardship involved with this, and uh, it's important to come to not just the right economic conclusion, but what is the right conclusion for for the country and uh, and for those that are going to come after us. For sure. I mean, thinking about you know, someone who can just knows how to turn the lights on, um, among other things, but you're thinking about the, the ice storms of either last year or what's going on this year, reliability is huge, right? But so is also affordability. You want to make sure that you know, it's affordable. And, uh, and then it just being able to conduct commerce and not just supplying the energy, but using energy to make things in the United States, make things in Texas. Um, and that cost matters too. And that reliability matters as well. Um, but also while that, we also wanna have clean air, clean water, and we have the cleanest air and the cleanest water here in the United States because we lead in innovation, we lead in technology, and we have the most rigorous uh, environmental standards in the world. 
Well, of course, the Committee on Energy and Commerce, uh, long before I arrived here, spent um, months marking up the Clean Air Act, which really became the foundation for uh, that environmental stewardship that we, from which we have all benefited. And it's recognizing the role that the committee has to play. Both, both political parties, in fact, uh, have to contribute to that. I can remember one of my uh, colleagues on the committee was Ralph Hall. He'd been on that committee for a long time. Uh, I used to tease him. He'd been on the committee since Earth Cooled the first time. Um, <laughs> but he would, he would uh, reminisce about how difficult that markup was. And it was difficult. He was a Democrat back then. It was difficult between Democrats because you had Henry Waxman, who was probably the, the patron saint of who would, what would become the environmental movement, and also on the Democratic Party, you had John Dingell, who was responsible for the major manufacturing outlets up in Detroit, Michigan. And it was trying to balance the needs and desires of both of those two very powerful Democrats that actually led to, uh, after a lot of debate and, and angst, led to what worked out to be a, a very workable solution in the Clean Air Act. And not that it's not a work in progress, but I, I'm just always mindful of the fact, sometimes here we do things, it seems like in a hurry, we do them at the last minute, uh, we'll do big omnibus bills without a lot, seems like a lot of thought going into it. And I'm just taken back to those days, <laughs> you think about eight months in a, in a committee markup, uh, took a lot of fortitude to get through it, but they, they did it right. And the fact that it has stood the test of time is a testament to that. It's pretty incredible. And you think about uh, the United States versus other countries and what the Clean Air Act does, this really gives us a lot of transparency. We know, you know how clean our air is by looking now on an app or uh, you know, looking online. Um, other countries can't say that. Uh, and it's other countries that also are, who many of which are our competitors. And so while they say they're, going to reduce emissions by so much by a certain time, we really don't have there's not the transparency from that government that we can expect from the United States and because of the hard work of the Clean Air Act. Yes, yeah, so, so the applied metrics can be difficult and sometimes they're not readily apparent. I know uh, in the part of the world that, uh, that I grew up in and that I now represent, North Texas, uh, we've, we've just had phenomenal growth over the time that I've been in Congress the last 20 years. Uh, State of Texas has has just, uh, I mean, it's just been incredible, the amount of growth. And we had air quality problems before I took office. And it was recognized. And in fact, we were, um, sometimes we would be cited by the Environmental Protection Agency because of air quality issues. I don't know that we've ever completely achieved the goals set out. Uh, under the Clean Air Act because they have changed over time and they've ratcheted down uh, from, I don't know how many parts per billion, but down even lower and lower and lower over time. But the thing is, we've always gotten closer to those goals that have been set in spite of the fact that there's now three times the number of people living there, which means three times the number of households and automobiles and manufacturing activity and and uh, uh, construction activity, the sort of off-road contribution to the mobile source pollution. And in spite of all of that, you know, you look at the curves and you think, oh my gosh, we'd be completely overwhelmed by now. In fact, we're not, uh, not perfect by any means. And we still have, we still have measures to undertake to, to improve. 
But in the face of what has been just unprecedented growth in the area, we've done a pretty darn good job. Hey, technology grand. Isn't it great to see that? Well, and so much of it's happening in Texas. I mean, not only is Texas just a, an energy exporter in so many ways, but a technology exporter. Um, so much of the technology that we're using today for energy um, emissions reductions are starting um, with the oil and gas industry themselves, having the capital to be able to invest to improve our lives, improve our health. It's, it's really amazing, and it starts right there in Texas. Well, that's such an important point. Uh, I'll never forget one time on an energy hearing, I don't remember who the witness was, that they told us without energy, life is cold, brutal, and short. Uh, <laughs> and that's, that's true, that's and, true. And who wants that for them, themselves or their future? But having that capital to invest and having the ability to make those types of investments for the future. That's been a that's been a pretty important part of this equation, hasn't it? It has. I mean, it's because also we as consumers want that. I mean, with all, um, with all respect to you, Congressman, what we're doing here in Washington, D.C., and the work you're doing is great, but really it's what the voters want, what the people want, what the market wants. And uh, the businesses are, are responding to that and recognizing that lower emissions is where it's at. There's money to be made. Um, there's health to be protected. There's better qualities of life to have. Um, it's a win-win for everybody. But we've got to also be patient with the process. We can't get uh, to lowest emissions uh, tomorrow. It's going to take some time to do that. But on the same hand, no one's doing it better than the United States of America. So I always fall back on the notion that uh, we are a people who are governed with the consent of the governed. And it's not that the government is smarter than the people. Um, and the government needs to listen to the people. We do an energy efficiency summit every July. I started this probably back when energy prices started getting so high in the in, back in the middle of the last decade, 2006 or 2007, gas prices jumped, electricity prices jumped. And the purpose in doing the, the summits was not to tell people what the federal government was going to do to make their lives better, but to provide people with a knowledge base so that they can make energy purchases the same as they would make any other purchase. You're going to buy a new pair of shoes, you go find out who's the best manufacturer and who's got the best price. So energy purchases can be can kind of be looked at in the same way. And I'll tell you something I learned over the process. I probably was 2007 and someone at, we had a fair where we have the all of the demonstration booths where people can see the technology or see the the, the new light bulbs or, or whatever. And someone said, can I bring an electric car? I'm like, dude, this is Texas. Nobody's <laughs> going to buy an electric car in Texas. But it was a phenomenal hit. And over time, uh, the electric cars actually became the biggest part of that energy efficiency summit. And in fact, we had to move to a bigger location where it was almost like the State Fair of Texas for electric cars. And we've even had an electric motorcycle, an electric Harley uh, a couple of times. But I also remember there was a big push to get Congress to invest in natural gas filling stations mm -hmm. so that cars could be run on natural gas. Well, we're from a part of the country that produces a lot of natural gas, so you'd think that'd be logical. But consumers made the choice. They didn't want compressed natural gas vehicles, but they do like electric vehicles. Granted, they're toys for rich kids right now, but <laughs> the increasing popularity, even in Texas, is really a testament to that power of consumer demand that you referenced. Exactly. And I think these alternative vehicle, alternative 
pharmaceutical fuels. You know, it, it's really I need to think about the technology that it brings us to. It. Maybe maybe we're not going to all be in electric vehicles, but maybe we'll, that technology will be used for something else. So we don't know what the, we never knew that our our cell phones or iPhones or whatever they were were going to be so important to us. Uh, and now and now look at us. So the technology that's there isn't just for that particular piece, but it probably is going to enhance our lives in some other way, which is all a testament to the energy economy uh, and why I think when I think Texas, I think energy for so many reasons. Well, and I referenced that earlier today, I was uh, in a bipartisan classified briefing talking about uh, one of the stress points in the world. And, you know, we've seen the United States become involved in conflicts in other parts of the world. And, and, and a lot of it is because of, of, of energy, of energy demand, of energy requirements. And Ralph Hall, who I, I referenced earlier, used to talk about the Second World War. Pearl Harbor was largely because the United States cut off the energy supply of the imperial country of Japan and they didn't like it, and so they retaliated. Uh, we certainly fought a number of wars. Uh, when I first got here in Iraq and Afghanistan, probably those uh, kinetic activities in the Middle East were directly resulted to our energy oh, needs and requirements. Um, and then we went through a phase where we were energy independent. The United States was exporting for the first time. It was the major exporter of energy in the world. And a lot of that was brought about by policies as it came through the Energy and Commerce Committee, allowing the United States, lifting the ban on the export of crude oil, mm -hmm. which was a relic from the old Arab oil embargo days in the early 1970s, before your time, I lived through it, uh, cold showers and gas lines, who wants to go back there? But the United States became energy independent. That was extremely, extremely important on the geopolitical stage, wasn't it? Incredibly so. Uh, and just recently, we've been hearing more about OPEC. I'm like, what's OPEC? We haven't heard about OPEC in at least four years, if not longer. Um, and thinking about being you know, the, the, the shell revolution, natural gas, LNG, we do it cleaner here than anywhere else in, in the world. Even if you export it it's, and getting it to someplace, shipping it, it's still cleaner. Um, and you look at some of our adversaries that are also creating LNG, it's dirtier, it has a longer uh, life cycle um, for um, pollutants in the air. Uh, so, you know, why we should be we should be creating as much energy as we can here in the United States, not only for our own citizens, but ex exporting that around the world. And that modernizes the rest of the world as well. Um, and we, who, who would begrudge them for that? But energy is the underpinning of, of modern life. Uh, no doubt about it. And so when you think about the economics, you have to think about the energy. They just their hand in glove. And the peril that it places the country to not be energy independent. Um, I gotta tell you the truth, before I woke up one day and realized the United States had achieved energy independence, I don't know if you'd ask me a theoretic question, would it be good for the United States to be energy independent? And I would opine that yes, that would be good. But having lived through that era of just literally a few years ago, it is extremely powerful. And I just remember it gave our military leaders and our diplomatic leaders so much more leeway as they would be able to go into these types of negotiations and difficulty knowing that America was energy independent and we did not need to look at any other country or any other part of the world, which is what's so painful now about watching Europe become more dependent upon energy from parts of the world that are perhaps behaving a little more aggressively toward uh, toward other countries, and that's, and I gotta tell you, that's a, a major concern. 
right now. I've been watching it closely myself, and uh, as a child of the the Cold War and remembering some of the, the tense times in growing up there and having a relatively a peaceful time, particularly in the previous administration. I mean, just no real conflicts. I mean, challenges, sure, but no real conflicts and certainly not over uh, our energy needs. There is some peace of mind with that. Now, there's a national security, but there's also a peacefulness. I mean, I'm a mom. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a parent. People who are listening are parents. I mean, you want the world to be safe, and it's one less thing to worry about with everything else you have to worry about. And now we're back here for some reason, and we don't have to be. I just scratch my head. I wonder, why, why are we voluntary voluntarily going there when we do so much so well when it comes to energy production in the United States. Which of course brings us back to the state of Texas, <laughs> which can produce the uh, volumes of energy that are required not only to power our own economy here at home, but uh, available to export to uh, our friends and allies around the globe so that they're not dependent upon those sources that uh, might have more author authoritarian leaders. I was going to ask you, since we're talking about this you know, historic year last year was uh, you know, a year later, the, the power on bill that you were uh, you were leading on and now I think is, is now law. But um, we can have you can create energy, but you also have to have a, a strong and reliable and resilient grid and uh, congratulate you on, on getting that across over the finish line. And I think we're going to learn a lot from Texas, as we usually do as the rest of the country. Um, but thank you for, for spearheading that and becoming law, because I think it's going to do some really good investments for our country, um, continue to have that resiliency. I do want my lights to turn on when I flip the switch, Congressman. <laughs> well, that was the idea behind the power on, is we'll make, uh, we'll make grants available for grid resiliency activities. and. Yes, the, the hard lesson of tropical, a tropical storm, a winter storm Uri, yeah. a year ago was that uh, we weren't as prepared as, as perhaps we should have been. And uh, you know what? I lived through the, the cold spell of 2011, which was the last time a Super Bowl was played in Dallas. Everybody remembers <laughs> Jerry Jones' new stadium being covered in ice and the sheets falling off the collapsible roof or whatever it was. But it was, a, <laughs> it was pretty dreadful. That was a bad cold snap. No one believed it could be even worse, and then it got even worse. Today, uh, right now, there's kind of a, a what I call a modified stress test now. There were some improvements made to the grid, some thanks to the Power On Act, some others will follow, but there's kind of a stress test going on, and we'll see how the grid performs. So right now, so far, so good. So, um, But we've got to always be reevaluating and, and learning because if we don't, then the, uh, the consequences, well, just a lot of people who are depending upon everything going right and nothing going wrong. That's <laughs> for sure. Well, although I'm not a resident of Texas, I can tell you, but I know that Texas is stress testing something having to do with energy or grids. Um, I'm feeling better about it and using that technology um, and making sure it's going across the country that Texas did it and did it right. Well, I'm sure it's going to be good for the rest of us. One of my first years on the Energy and Commerce Committee, there was a big, bad power outage up in the Northeast. I don't remember quite what the cause was. I, I tell people I think a squirrel, squirrel fell into the transformer, but uh, maybe <laughs> <Poor> more, <squirrel. laughs> may have been more complicated than that. But uh, yeah, the power grid went down in the Northeast for like four, four and a half days, and it was pretty tough on people. It was summertime and air conditioning went down. Um, we've learned over time that uh, we are very dependent on our, our energy grid. It um, not just keeps us warm and keeps the lights on, but in fact keeps us alive in times of, of, harsh, of harsh 
climactic change, and whether it be cold or heat, uh, people can be vulnerable to extremes of either. And unfortunately, we've seen those lessons learned over and over again. Well, we're learning from them, fortunately, and we're trying new technologies, investing in them, getting federal grants is a huge part of that uh, because it's what we all will benefit for something like that. And, and fortunately, it was an unfortunate event in Texas that happened that realized that, you know, Arctic cold can get really far south into the United States and even to Mexico. And uh, the, the climates aren't prepared for that. So it happens. Um, and uh, it doesn't have to happen on a Super Bowl, but it does happen. And we take notice. And um, I think this is kind of the evolving piece about energy. But right now, we're thinking about the resiliency of the grid. And maybe that's something where we should be focusing instead of being energy dependent. I mean, it just seems like we're, we're adding more problems onto our, our plate. Um, if we're ceding the authority we've had and the, the, the supreme leadership of, of to be an energy exporter. It just allowed us to do so much more as a nation and geopolitically. Uh, and it seems like we've, we've ceded that, that strength as a country. So that is something that I know that I'm looking at. I know that you're looking at too, Congressman. I think it's something that we, we really have to think um, long and hard about as we face these challenges like a, a cold snap. Um, and, and, and a, an international issue, international issues that are going on. And really, where should we be in the United States in terms of protecting our citizens uh, and being a place for the world? Energy is a huge part of that, and we're, we're letting it go. We're, again, of course, we are re, re-regulating in places that make it more difficult to, to move energy around, and that can add to the difficulties. I um, Look, I, I appreciate that uh, there's a lot of people that are involved in delivering the product. Of course, in, in Texas, the uh, majority of that does come through the state legislature. Uh, but I've, this office has worked closely with our counterparts at the state legislature and with the regulatory bodies in the state of Texas, the Texas Railroad Commission, which is responsible for overseeing pipelines. You know, one of the big problems that exists right now, Texas does have abundant natural gas, and uh, that that's a good thing. Um, one of the problems of a year ago was not getting the gas where it was needed when it was needed, and they are dealing with that. But the other thing is um, when people are critical of traditional energy sources, they'll say, well, it's, uh, there's, it's too carbon intensive or it is uh, the methane itself is a, is, is a greenhouse gas pollutant. So one of the issues where I've really focused a lot is on how to get stranded gas out of the Permian Basin to the marketplace. Uh, that does require permitting and pipelines, but that's not beyond our, our technical capabilities, so that is important. Uh, you don't want to see the gas vented or flared. If there's a place that it can be used, you want it to be used to, for the economic benefit of, of, of a family or a state or a country. Um, and I think that's one of the exciting things that I've that I've encountered at the, the Texas Railroad Commission, their their willingness to consider getting that gas out of the area where it's created in the Permian Basin, but getting it to the major population centers of Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, or getting it down to one of those liquefied natural gas uh, terminals where it could be exported to other parts of the world. And I look at it as exporting freedom across the planet. I consider that definitely a responsible energy solution. <laughs> well, and we know uh, we know nuclear's got to be part of the component, and, and uh, I certainly recognize that. Long-term nuclear storage has been something that I've worked on 
a lot during my time up here. It's, it's still a work in progress. I am excited about some of the newer technologies that you see coming online, some of the investment that's being made in the small modular reactors. And got a ways to go. It's not mm-hmm. quite ready to come off the shelf yet, but uh, I, I feel like that will be part of the armamentarium of the future. But in the meantime, as you see the, the legacy nuclear power being decommissioned over in Europe, seeing them facing a very cold winter and understanding that, hey, Texas natural gas can uh, can supply those furnaces that need to that need to provide heat and energy over in Europe, uh, we can do that with our with our current structure. One hundred percent. And I mean, thinking about just baseload power, and that's the reliability of keeping the lights on and keeping us warm or, or moving uh, commerce around is, is so important. In Europe, they've sacrificed a lot of that. And uh, unfortunately, they're, they're, they're having to import uh, natural gas in from, from hostile nations. They're also paying price uh, per kilowatt hour. It's just incredible. So if we had that here in the United States, it would be devastating to our economy. So all the more reason we talk about the energy and our economics being tied together. I mean, case in point, we're living it right now. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned baseload power because that is a critical part of this. Uh, at one time, I had what's called a peaking plant in the 26th Congressional District. It was a natural gas plant that was dormant most of the year, but times of intense energy needs, it would fire up and, and produce electricity. Now, um, they asked me to come visit. My erstwhile scheduler scheduled me a visit uh, in August on the August recess. I learned that you don't go to a peaking plant in a suit and tie (laughs) when you've got a a Chamber of Commerce event coming up later because a peaking plant is a very hot and loud place. Um, But it it, it serves serves to the baseload power is extremely important. You need that baseload power to be consistent, but at times you're going to need that extra energy that you get from uh, uh, an area like a peaking plant. Fantastic. Well, I think um, yeah, I just also just want to thank you again. I mean, you are on the Energy and Commerce Committee. Um, your thoughtfulness on energy issues, um, thinking about the, the folks of Texas, but also us as Americans and those who care about energy. We appreciate your leadership and your work, and it's really an honor to be with you, sir. Well, thanks so much, Heather. Uh, thanks for being part of this podcast. We'll look forward to the next one, and uh, in the meantime, let's keep the lights on.